And if this is your first time worshiping with us uh, this morning, we're so glad you're here. Uh, there should be a little white um, card in the pew in front of you. It says Fellowship Church Communication Card on that. If you want to fill that out and you can put as little or as much contact information as you want on that, I send out a weekly email uh, giving out updates and what's going on with the church uh, so you can stay in, in, uh, better connected. And we can stay better connected to you. Uh, you can do that and you can either drop that in the little church on that pa- on the, in the, in the uh, back of the sanctuary there or you can give it to me uh, afterwards. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that even though it was daylight savings time today and we got some snow yesterday, I thank you for all those who are gathered in your house this morning. I pray that today would be a blessing to them. I pray that it would be a a meaningful sacrifice to you, that it would bring you glory, that you would be praised in this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that not only are there prophecies in it that are directly tied to what we're seeing unfold before our very eyes today, but there are also promises, so many promises in your word, promises where you will take care of us, where you will lead us, where you will protect us, where you will convict us sometimes, uh, where you will bring us the comfort and the healing and the peace and the joy that we need on every day. Lord, I pray that if, we're, if we've neglected reading your word, I pray that we would uh, take today as a, as a new step forward and making your, reading your word a real part of our lives each and every day, that the power of your word uh, would be seen and shown in our lives. I pray that you would go before us today, that your spirit would go forth and open our ears and our hearts to see and hear what you have for us this morning that we may bear real fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A man named Peter J. Daniels was born in 1932 in Adelaide, Australia. His parents were very poor, and especially in this time period, that resulted in Daniels exhibiting... uh, um, poor physical health as a child. On top of that, Daniel suffered from dyslexia, never passed a single grade as a child, and was pretty much illiterate until the age of 26. One quote that Daniels remembered one of his teachers saying to him constantly when he was in fourth grade was this, Peter J. Daniels, you're no good, you're a bad apple, and you're never going to amount to anything. Imagine being told that constantly in fourth grade. Talk about the recipe for the worst self-image in the world, right? Daniels could have kept that perception of him as someone who would never amount to anything and made it how his life was always going to be. Now, I mentioned already that Daniel's poor education up to age 26, it was at that point that something happened in his life that changed everything. While at a Billy Graham crusade in Australia in 1959, Daniels put his faith and trust in Jesus for his salvation. Shortly after, he believed God had given him two dreams. Number one, to see just how much money a person could give away in a lifetime. Not make, give away in a lifetime. And two, to change the world for 300 years. Those are two pretty daunting dreams, especially 
with the level of education that this man had. And so in order to fulfill these dreams, Daniels knew he needed to do something about his education. He educated himself without a tutor by purchasing three dictionaries, listening to British radio broadcasters to work on his pronunciation, and then personally studying a whole range of different subjects, including economics, politics, history, theology, law, philosophy, and business. He ended up failing three different times in business, but avoided bankruptcy and went on to have a thriving and large real estate business in Australia for two decades. At one point, however, Daniels decided he didn't want to be in the real estate business anymore, sold his business, and went into giving business seminars in churches based on Christian values all over the world. Daniels has authored over 15 books, 15 books, on business and has been quoted as being a missionary to the business world. The man who was once belittled as never amounting to anything has now been honored by universities, institutions, and governments for his business, entrepreneurship, and benevolence. One of the books he wrote was in reference to his unsupportive fourth grade teacher and entitled, I love this, Miss Phillips, You Were Wrong and instructed how to handle rejection. In our passage today, there's a man who suffered from a lifelong physical disability that he could do nothing about. He thought he knew what was going to be the only way anything in his life could change for the better, but what ended up being the source for change was way beyond anything he could have ever expected. Last week, we left Jesus in Cana and Galilee. Now, this is a map of the Middle East, or how it was 2,000 years ago. And there's a, there's a little line that goes up the middle here. This is the Jordan River. You might have heard that. This is the Sea of Galilee up here. You might have heard that. This purple area is the region of Judea. You might have heard of these cities, Jerusalem here, Bethlehem of Christmas fame. Then you have Samaria up here. This was a a region uh, that there was a, a bunch of people that lived in called Samaritans that were half Jewish people. And then up here is Galilee, sandwiched in between. Uh, Samaria sandwiched in between these two regions. The two purple regions are made up pri primarily of Jewish people. The one in the middle is the, the half Jewish people called Samaritans. And these people did not like each other whatsoever. There was hundreds of years of hatred and discrimination between these two people groups. And we talked a little while ago about Jesus going into Samaria and having a conversation with somebody who, who had a reputation for being very sinful, uh, not having their life right at all. And from there, there was a whole revival of people putting their faith and trust in Jesus in Samaria. Uh, last, then he, he traveled up through the rest of Samaria into Galilee. Last week, we left Jesus in Cana in Galilee, where he had just healed the son of an official from Herod Antipas's government with just four words. And there was 20 miles of distance between the two of them. 
Jesus had forced the boy's father to actually put his faith in Jesus as the Messiah and as God in order to believe that Jesus could and indeed had healed his son and even brought him back from the brink of death. The man returned to Capernaum where he lived and all of his household upon seeing the miracle of what Jesus had performed put their faith in Jesus. Now, in our passage this morning, Jesus is no longer in Galilee, but returns to Jerusalem in Judea. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 5. It's in the New Testament. You flip forward, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, um, or you you can look it up in the table of contents or ask a neighbor. There's no shame in that. We're going to be in verse 1 here in John chapter 5, or you can look this up on your Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 5, verse 1, we read this. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So he came all the way from Galilee, back through, probably back through Samaria, and all the way down to Jerusalem down here. I mentioned last week where that story took place in Cana in Galilee, and in order with what the other Gospels describe as what happened in Jesus' ministry. If you remember, I mentioned how Jesus traveled through Samaria, like I said, after the whole small revival in Sychar here in Samaria. He either stopped briefly in Nazareth uh, to say hi to his family or bypassed it all together and went up to Cana. There he healed the royal official's son with just four words. Following that event is probably what Luke, another gospel writer, records in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus goes back to Nazareth on the next Sabbath day, reads the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue, applies the prophecy to himself, and then almost gets chucked off the edge of a cliff for doing so by his fellow townspeople. You think you might have a bad relationship with your neighbors. Think think about getting chucked off a cliff, almost getting chucked off a cliff. Now, what else happens in between Jesus healing the royal official's son while in Cana and Galilee and what transpires in Jerusalem of Judea in this morning's passage? A lot, actually. Like I mentioned, Luke then describes Jesus' time at the synagogue and the edge of a cliff in Nazareth, after which he travels all the way over to Capernaum. From Cana here, or from Nazareth, he travels all the way to Capernaum over here on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus exercises a demon out of a man in Capernaum synagogue, goes and heals Peter's mother-in-law in Capernaum. While in Capernaum, Jesus officially calls Simon, Andrew, James, and John to follow him as disciples full-time. Then Jesus heals a bunch more people in Galilee, including a person suffering from leprosy and the paralyzed man who was lowered through the roof by his friends. Lastly, Jesus calls Matthew, or Levi, a tax collector, hated by his fellow Galileans, to follow him as a disciple. And quite interestingly... Everything that happens from John chapter 2, when Jesus clears out the temple in Jerusalem of the currency exchangers the first time, which most likely happened during Passover in the spring of about 26 AD, 
through Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, John the Baptist's last testimony of Jesus, Jesus leaving Judea and determining to go to Galilee, him traveling up through Samaria and leading the woman at the well and a lot of her fellow townspeople of Sychar to faith in him, Jesus arriving in Cana and healing the royal official's son with four words, and all the events I just mentioned that the other three Gospels record all take place in between last week's passage and this week's passage. All of that takes place. So when Jesus arrives back in Jerusalem for what John calls a feast that we just read in John chapter 5, verse 1, it's most likely the feast of Passover again, which means this, in the spring of 27 AD, marking a whole year from when Jesus was last there when he cleared out the temple and had a conversation with Nicodemus. And that's what brings us to what happens here today. So what sets up for what Jesus does here? Verse 2, read this with me. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porticos, or porches. Now what in the world is the pool of Bethesda? If you research this, you're going to find so many interpretations of what this could be, where it could be, what it was used for, and what its significance was, it would make your head spin. I'm not going to confuse you with all the various interpretations. And I'm just going to give you the explanation that I believe makes the most sense here. We read here in verse 2 that this pool was by the sheep gate in Jerusalem. There is one other reference in scripture about this gate, one of many in the walls of Jerusalem. When the returning Jewish exiles from Babylon were rebuilding the Jerusalem walls under the leadership of Nehemiah, we read this. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and installed its doors. They consecrated the wall to the tower of the hundred in the tower of Hananel. This is the best map I found that makes this the easiest to understand where this was. Those of you in the back are trying to squint. And say, I thought you said this would be easy. <laughs> the Tower of Hananel was in this general area right here where the Antonia Fortress was built uh, around Jesus' time. It was originally built by Nehemiah, which I just read, to protect the temple that it was right here. This is where the temple was in Jerusalem. So this gate has to be near that fortress. Again, in Jesus' day, the Tower of Hananel was where the Antonia Fortress was located, again, adjacent to the temple. In fact, Nehemiah, what do we read? He explains that it was the high priest who served at the rebuilt temple who was in charge of building this gate. Why was it called the Sheep Gate? This gate would then provide easy access for the sacrificial lambs, the sheep, to be led in from the fields to the temple complex for sacrifice. The connection between the sheep gate and the temple was undeniable. You can see here at number one is that sheep gate right here. It's right, next, it's right by this tower. It's in the wall right by the temple here. This is where the sheep gate was. And because of that, the location of the pool at the Bethesda can be determined to be right here. You can see that little rectangle there. 
You can see here that in Jesus' day, this was actually located just outside of the city walls. These were the city walls of Jerusalem in Jesus' day. The Pool of Bethesda is actually just outside of those walls. Now, I went through all of this. If you fell asleep when I went through that, that's okay. You can wake up again now. I went through all of that for an important... I know it's daylight savings time. I went through all of that for an important reason, which factors directly into our story this morning. Even though the Sheep Gate in, Jeru- in the Jerusalem Wall did not exist under... Uh, uh, by the time, uh, even though the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem did exist under Nehemiah, the pool at Bethesda uh, did also as well. It's been proposed by historians that this pool originated within the short valley known as Bethsaida in this area when that was dammed, creating a reservoir for rainwater. A gate was built into this dam to control the water height in the pool, and a rock channel would bring water from this pool into the city. Since this was in such close proximity to where Solomon's temple was built, the water from this pool would flow to the temple and provide water for the temple's operation. In fact, some biblical scholars believe that the upper pool described in 2 Kings 18 is one and the same as this original pool that would become known as Bethesda. Later on, when the Greeks conquered Jerusalem and the surrounding area, in between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, during the 400 years of prophetic silence before Jesus was born, that channel that brought water from this pool to the temple was enclosed by the high priest at the time, and a second pool was added to the south side of the original dam. It was also during this period of time that porches were added around the sides of these now two pools separated by the original dam wall in between. So, by the time Jesus walked the earth, this pool, now known as Bethesda, looked like this. This model housed at the Israel Museum. In this model, you can see this. This was the original upper pool the uh, secondary southern pool, you can see here the path that leads to the wall of Jerusalem. And what do you think that door is right there? There's the sheep gate. Okay, so this collected rainwater. Here is the dam in between. Uh, When this got too high, they would lower it into this uh, secondary pool. Now, why why is all of this important? Here's why. What is the only other description John gives about the pool of Bethesda? It had what? Verse 2, we read that. Five porches, five porticos. Did you know that before 1956, critics of the Bible scoffed at John's description of this pool complex having five porches? Not only because most buildings of the time would have at most four porches in rectangular form, but nothing that had been archaeologically found before that fit that description. But in 1956, the ruins of this were found intact exactly the way John describes it, as having five porticos, the four sides, one, two, three, four, and guess what? A fifth one in between, exactly the way John describes. Under these porticos, these porches, John describes this in the beginning part of verse 3. 
In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Their, their, their uh, extremities didn't work. Now why? Why would those who suffered from all kinds of physical illness and disabilities congregate together under these porticos, these porches? These were just pools to collect rainwater outside of the city in order to channel water into the temple complex. So again, why would these people gather together here? Well, we get an explanation next, the second part of verse 3 and into verse 4. Waiting for the moving of the waters, verse 4. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, when you read that, you might have noticed something odd about those verses. Did you notice something about how this is written out in these verses in your Bible? Depending on which translation you're reading from, you may see these verses included in what? You got brackets around those verses in your Bible, starting halfway through verse 3 until the end of verse 4. You may even have a footnote that explains why these are in brackets. Why these verses are in brackets in your Bible is that the earliest manuscripts that have been found of the Gospel of John do not include these verses. This has led many in biblical scholarship to believe that they were added by a later scribe to explain why these people were gathered here. In fact, one scholar points out that John 5.4 is simply not included in most modern translations. And that might have been your case. You're looking through your Bible and you're saying, you're reading a verse that's not even in my Bible here. Where'd you come up with, with that? This is why. However, on the other hand, it is also highly likely that the scribes who copied over the earliest manuscripts may have removed the verses we have in brackets due to the possibility that there may be confused with pagan or superstitious beliefs in existence at that time. I'll get to that in a second. Stay with me. Firstly, remember who John is writing to. John is writing to churches made up of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. He's already given the Hebrew word for Bethesda. I'll get this word eventually by the time we get to the end of this. Notice that in verse 2, did you see that? He feels like he needs to explain what Bethesda means, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda. He's already given an explanation for that name there in order to explain its, its significance to Gentile Christians who had no prior knowledge of it. It would likewise make a lot of sense for him to explain why people would flock to Bethesda as well. If the verses in the brackets were not a part of the original gospel, then verse 7, if you read ahead to verse 7, would make absolutely no sense to those who had no prior knowledge of Bethesda. So, there's also a very strong possibility that these verses are part of the original gospel. In fact, as noted by one biblical scholar, the early church father, Tertullian, knew the existence of these verses as early as 200 AD. In any case, John is simply explaining why people were there. 
There is no evidence in scripture or elsewhere that this phenomenon ever happened. And if you think about it, if this was actually the way that God worked, this would be a very cruel way for God to work, wouldn't it? The people who needed this healing the most were just never going to get it. Those who could probably didn't need this healing as much as those who couldn't get into the pool. That's a very cruel way for God to operate. There's no evidence in scripture or elsewhere that what John is describing here ever happened. He's just explaining why they were there. This also explains why these verses may have been removed by scribes early on. Remember I said, I'll talk about that in a second. Here's why. Who conquered this area before this, before Jesus' day, and forced everyone to learn the Greek language and learn Greek culture and philosophy and even Greek religion? I already gave you the answer. I know it was daylight savings time, but... The Greeks, right? I already gave you the answer there. Okay. During that time period, a lot of Jewish culture was what was called Hellenized or fused and even replaced with Greek culture. The whole area became Hellenized. About a hundred years before this, before what we're reading here takes place, before 30 B.C., Herod the Great, that guy, that fun-loving guy who, during, when Jesus was born, gave out that evil edict to have all the other male babies born, uh, that were born around that same time killed. Herod the Great, who expanded the temple to be the complex that Jesus would visit, built the Antonia Fortress to protect the temple expansion. Remember, the Antonia Fortress right here to protect that temple expansion. He named it after one of his heroes. You might have heard about this guy before, Mark Antony. You heard about that guy? It was around the same time of the building of this fortress that natural caves near the pool of Bethesda were converted into pagan healing temples called Asclepions and dedicated to the Greek demigod of healing, Asclepius. Shortly thereafter, that whole general area right here, located outside of the city walls, was, and including the Pool of Bethesda, became identified with this pagan belief of healing by Asclepius. It's entirely possible and probable that the Pool of Bethesda took on this identity because of the Hellenization of the whole area and its close proximity to the Asclepions. But because the Jewish people would never outright attribute any supernatural healing to a Greek god for fear of being stoned for blasphemy, the legend became that it was because of an angel who would stir the water in these pools to give them healing powers. Now, we can see why Christian scribes might want to remove the obvious connection to this pagan legend in the earliest manuscripts of John. In any case, though, it does not change major theological truths nor what happens next. Why would people attribute healing powers to certain times of the year when the waters would be stirred up? That's what we read. 
For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool. So people could tell that at regular times of the year this would happen. Just because Jesus is here at Passover doesn't mean that this only happened at Passover. All we're told is that at certain points of the year this would happen. And it appears to be a surprise as to when this would happen. When it would happen, seemingly without warning, the first person in was said to be healed. What could this have actually been if the whole belief was not actually tied to God and rather tied to superstition at best and paganism at worst? Remember what was in between these two pools here? That dam that was in between these two pools? The rainy season in Israel lasts from October to May, which well encompasses the time of Passover, usually in April. If the upper pool was at the point of overflowing due to these rains, heavy rains, the dam gate could be opened to bring water into the lower pool and then divert it off into that channel uh, into the temple. And if that dam gate is opened, what's going to happen? A disturbance of the water, which the people may have interpreted as being connected to this superstitious legend. Now, at this location is a certain man. Now it becomes personal. Verse 5. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. It was almost 40 years that this man suffered this illness. We find out that this illness rendered this man incapable of walking. He couldn't get to this pool whenever the water would be disturbed. And he would have needed somebody to carry him in. And nobody wanted to do that. So he was never able to get into that pool. As one biblical scholar pointed out, this man's illness lasted longer in this man's life then a lot of people even lived at that point in time. It's dominated his life, and it's been his identity for most of it. He's placed his faith not in asking God for healing and trusting him for it, but in this superstitious legend. And he thought, as we opened up our time with, that his only hope for healing was in that superstition. But he was about to experience healing in a way that was way beyond anything he had ever expected. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Very poignant question, isn't it? Jesus, for this very reason, goes out to this place identified with superstitious or pagan belief in healing to stand up and in a very real and powerful way declare that it's only through him as God that anyone can have any kind of healing. And while there, he finds a man, and again, because Jesus knew human hearts and thoughts, determined for how long this man had been sick and couldn't walk. Then Jesus asks this man a seemingly strange question. He says, do you wish to get well? You would think Jesus already knew what the man's response would be. Uh, duh. <laughs> yes, I want to get well. Why do you think I'm here, of all places? 
Uh, Similar to the conversation Jesus had with the royal official last week, Jesus is making a point with this question. Jesus is pointing out to the man that he had a problem, which was hopeless in a human viewpoint and exactly how the man explains the hopelessness of this predicament. By doing so, Jesus was pointing out the hopelessness we all have in the sickness of our sins. We can't do anything about that sickness either, on our own or through the help of another human. Our only hope is to be freed from the sickness of sin. To be freed from the sickness of sin is Jesus. But the man explains his hopelessness next. Verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. See, the man assumed that all Jesus could be talking about was the superstitious legend for why he was there. And as such, the man explained just how impossible it was for him to receive any kind of healing whatsoever. But here's my question. If this man's situation was so hopeless in his mind, why was he even there? Why did he even bother laying under those porches For most of his life. This is why. Because he still had a shred of hope. That something might happen. No matter how humanly impossible it was. And that hope. That teeny shred of hope. Was what Jesus wanted to reawaken in this man. Imagine Being that hopeless, having that tiny shred of hope that still lingered in your life and having somebody come up to you that you've never seen, you've never met before, and they say, do you wish to get well? What is that going to do within you? That's going to reawaken that little little shred of hope. No, the hope was not in the superstition. All Jesus had done to this point has been to point out the problem and the hopelessness of the problem. It's the same for when we come to a place of placing our faith and trust in Jesus for our salvation. We too have to come to a place where we see the hopelessness of the problem and the sickness of our sin. And we have to see the powerlessness of us in that darkness. We have to see that what we all deserve And that's death and hell for our rebellion and confirming that rebellion with every decision we make each day is all we have to look forward to. A lot of people simply don't ever want to see themselves that way. All they ever see themselves as are not that bad people. But in order to truly be saved from our sin and what that earns us, is to see the gravity of it, to see how it's permeated every part of us, and to see how we just naturally lean towards it, and how impossible it is for us to earn our way out of it. 
We will never be good enough. We will never be able to earn our way out of it. We will never be able to do enough good things to outweigh the bad things because none of that is taking care of the actual problem. None of that is taking care of the sin problem. The only one who can take care of that sin problem in our lives is not us, is not anybody else, is not anybody else we can talk to, any human, is not anything that we can do to try to earn that, to try to cover that up, to make it so that we're not that bad people. Standing before God one day, we cannot say, when God says, why should I let you into heaven? We cannot say, well, it's because I never killed anybody. That's not going to cut it. The only way that we can say, the only reason I can enter heaven is because Jesus died for me and Jesus took my place in death to pay for my sin so that I could reap the benefits of eternal life. That is the only leg we have to stand on. That is the only thing we can do in the hopelessness of our situation. Lastly, for this morning anyway, Jesus says one sentence that changes this man's life forever. Verses 8 and 9. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, the thing that he was lying on, and walk. Immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. We're not told if this man put his faith in Jesus as Savior right away. We're told later on that he didn't know it was Jesus who had healed him. But Jesus later has another conversation with him, which we're going to talk about next week. Similar to the royal official last week, the miracle is what fully confirms the faith that happens as a result of it. At the very least, this man had to believe that what Jesus said to him would come true. See, this man could have looked at Jesus and said, what are you, nuts? Or maybe he could have just thought Jesus was just making a cruel joke at his expense. He was probably used to it by now. After enduring 38 years of the jeers and misunderstanding and the mockery from his fellow man. But something was stirred up inside of him that day. Faith that had been dormant for decades was suddenly sparked. He could tell there was something different about this man standing in front of him. What did he risk if he tried to get up and do exactly that this man told him to do? For one thing, if he couldn't do it, if this man was just playing a cruel joke on him, everyone would laugh at him for even trying, right? But he threw that aside and chose to trust this man he could see something different in. Something absolutely incredible happens next. Imagine a man who has not used his legs for 38 years. Anybody in the medical profession can understand this pretty easily. He would have physically looked pretty bad, for there would have been 38 years of muscle atrophy. It wouldn't have been a pretty sight him laying next to the pool of Bethesda. But all of a sudden, all those muscles that had atrophied for 38 straight years are strengthened, and the man is able to push himself up. Can you imagine this scene unfolding before your very eyes? 
What a scene. Imagine the joy and just sheer disbelief at what you've just experienced. In one instant, all the depression, all the illness, and all the hopelessness are just gone. It all just disappeared into uncontrollable happiness. Everything that had been the way it was for almost four decades was instantly different, instantly changed. And what is awesome to see about the words Jesus speaks to this man to initiate this unbelievable miracle is this. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, the word used for get up is the same word used to describe resurrection. This man was resurrected physically, and I would hope, but I'm not sure, spiritually that day. And our only hope of eternal salvation and everything that happens before that is only based on the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the bedrock upon any hope that we can have rests upon. Firstly, his resurrection is our only hope of being forgiven of our sins, being reconciled to God, being legally seen as righteous in his eyes, and being given a heavenly home when we die. Remember the hopelessness of the sickness of our sin. Jesus, as the sinless sacrifice, died on the cross and took the punishment for our sin as a substitute on our behalf. But if he had just stayed dead and in the grave, any hope that that sacrifice would have brought to us would have died right along with him. It's only because he then rose again from the dead three days later that we have the hope of salvation from our sins and all of eternity opened up for us. If we come to God in the hopelessness of the sickness of our sin and recognize that it's only because of Jesus' death and resurrection that we then ask him for forgiveness of that sin and reconciliation to himself, we are promised by God's word that he will forgive us. He will save us from our sins and the punishment of our sins, hell, and save us to an eternity spent with him. What we're also given by the resurrection of Jesus is the hope of healing in every way. We're given the hope of miraculous physical healing from painful and debilitating conditions we've spent years suffering from. We're given the hope of freedom and healing from debilitating depression, anxiety, fear, and worry. We're given the hope of healing of mental and psychological conditions that make living life extremely difficult. We're given the hope of redemption of our pasts and new life for the future. And when Jesus comes back for us, whether dead or alive at that point, we're given the hope and promise that Jesus will physically resurrect our bodies in our earthly bodies and replace them with perfect, disease-free, unbroken, glorified bodies that we will be able to revel in during Jesus' kingdom on earth and for eternity in the new heavens and new earth. Amen? Amen. Jesus will bring healing in different ways in his timing and for his purposes. In the meantime, like we talked about, like we talk about all the time, God is growing our faith. 
He's stretching and deepening it to become the full measure of Jesus and revealing more and more of his faithfulness, goodness, and comfort to us. And at the end of all of it, we can look forward with immeasurable excitement. Our souls going to be with Jesus when we die and all of us receiving glorified, fully healed, and complete bodies to enjoy being in his presence with for all of eternity. Walk forward in the hope of that healing. Get up and walk. Get up and walk forward in the hope of that healing. Get up and walk forward in the promise of God's faithfulness. And get up and walk forward in the excitement of all that still is to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that what we see is the hopelessness of this man's situation. That nothing was going to change until you stepped in. And Lord, a lot of us are going through situations that nothing is going to change unless you step in. I pray that if there's anybody here who has not put their faith and trust in you, in your death and resurrection for their salvation and the forgiveness of their sins and the opening of eternity up for them, I pray that they would do so right now. And I pray that all of us would get up and walk forward in that hope and in that excitement and in that healing that you will bring to us in your timing and for your purpose. And at the end of all of it, you will resurrect us and give us glorified bodies to enjoy as we spend all of eternity with you. Give us the strength and this courage and this power as we walk out of this place and into this dark and hopeless world. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.